0: Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques, with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Reliability Matters podcast. I'm Mike Conrad. For those of you who are keeping track, this is episode number 118. The subjects of Industry 4.0 and big data have been widely discussed on this podcast. What is Industry 4.0? What data is our industry collecting? And perhaps more importantly, how can we sift through all of that data to make it useful and actionable? To help answer these and other data-related questions, I invited Ryan Gamble, CEO and founder of IntraRatio onto this episode. IntraRatio Corporation is a company that provides on-premise and cloud hybrid software with platforms to track, manage, control, and automate the manufacture of advanced electronics. IntraRatio serves the semiconductor, SMT, space and military, medical device, and EV markets. Ryan earned a dual electrical and computer engineering degree and spent many years in the semiconductor industry. He's responsible for improving product manufacturing and testing of commercial and space and military products. He's responsible for improving product manufacturing and testing of commercial, as well as space and military product lines, including multi-core DSP, RF, and silicon photonic devices. During this period, he developed software systems to automate and manage quality and reliability of complex electronics extending this to hyperscale web-based platforms that interconnect factories globally. His passion is working with all levels to identify and recommend solutions to business problems based on a deep technical understanding of operational processes and product complexities. Without any further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome Ryan Gamble to the show. Hi, Ryan.
0: Thank you so much. Real pleasure to be here and uh, have the opportunity to share you know, what industry knowledge, experiences, and guidance I can on uh, this very pertinent topic. Thank you.
1: Yeah, my pleasure, and thank you for agreeing to do this as well. Um, I think it's a, it, it is a topical subject for sure, and every time I watch the news or you know catch up on current events uh, some way, I hear the term big data, and it's never in a complimentary uh, context. It's always, um, you know, big data is spying on us and big data, big data, big data. It's all kind of negative news. Uh, however, I suppose, like many other things, it's all contextual, right? It's it's what we do with that data. If, if, uh, if it's used for nefarious purposes, like maybe some social media platforms use it for, uh, or at least allegedly use it for, uh, that could be uh, quite problematic. But I think um, we we live in a exciting time because finally the technology has allowed us not only to capture it but to store it. You know we we've been able to capture it for a long time. Storing was another problem because storage used to be expensive. Uh, mm-hmm. Many years ago, it, probably in the late '80s, maybe early '90s, I think it was the late '80s. I uh, went to see a customer, and they made memory chips. That's all they did. Was they made memory chips, and we could get into the facility, no problem. To leave, we had to go through metal detectors and they had armed guards running you through metal detectors. It was harder to leave that building than it was to get on an airplane today. And the reason was memory was so expensive that uh, vendors, employees, anyone that went into the building could make a small fortune by grabbing a fistful, putting them in their pocket and leaving, it it was that expensive. And these were, you know, 16 meg memory cards, right? (laughs) These were nothing compared to what we have today. Uh,
0: Well, in this this space, it's pretty amazing what you can store in a memory card these days.
1: Yeah, yeah. well, I I do a lot of content creation like this and other things. Um, So I, you know, video still takes a lot of content, you know, relatively speaking. So I have my, you know, my nice MacBook Pro, you know, which is, you know, this thin and, you know, this big. Uh, and then I have something the size of a shoebox, which is a 12 terabyte uh, external hard drive. Um, and, and, and that sounds like, you know, in your world, that's not a lot of data. In, in, in my world, that's a lot of data. You know, it's like a 10 pound shoebox that I have to constantly use because my, right. um, my one terabyte hard drive uh, SSD hard drive in my laptop is nowhere near enough. I'll I'll do three or four episodes and it's full, right? So I have to export everything to, um, to an external hard drive. Now, in your world, that technology advancement, that evolution in memory storage has really made your world possible. Um, so, uh, because now, not only can we grab it, we don't have to be too careful about what we grab. We can just grab everything and then decide later, you know, what and we... And that
0: comes back to... Burn us later. So it's interesting, you know. It uh, yeah, there's a there's a balance in that, and yeah, we're, we'll kind of talk about
1: hence that the term big data, right? We're able to collect a big amount of data, a large amount of data. So before we dive into this whole data thing, um, tell me a little bit about uh, Intra Ratio, the company you founded and and um, and that you are CEO of.
0: Okay, um, you know, so we're we're a company that's born out of, you know, I'm going to quote of former VP ops, Qualcomm. He said it's basically looks to him was a company born out of product engineering DNA. And it, it really fits on that, uh, basically develop solutions to solve problems. When I was a product and test engineer being responsible for some of the largest system on chip products out there in the market, in the reliability issues we're having. You know, at one point I was working, I was responsible for a product line that was the Behind most of the advanced internet routers in the early 2000s. So it was deployed across Cisco, Lucent, Alcatel, Nortel, all their uh, infrastructure. So, you know, voice over IP was coming on board. Um, and that massive complexity, you got a billion transistors. Now it's being placed on a board with billions of other transistor based devices and the complexity. So the company was really born out of that. How do you track all that? Collect all that data and and analyze, it and be able to identify quality issues before they happen, and and then also very importantly, how do you identify the root cause of quality issues when they have happened, and do it very quickly, you know? So that progression of my career, about twenty years as an electronics semiconductor engineer, working in back end semi, sometimes in the fab, but mostly back end semi, all the way to final electronic system products. I developed software platforms that would interconnect and grab the data and then also connect to the suppliers because product would go out the door to a supplier for some other sub-assembly and come back in. How do you track that? So in a way, we're kind of ahead of the curve in terms of tying in the whole supply chain. And uh, uh, as I was creating these solutions, eventually it was time to commercialize it and spin off as a formal enterprise. So that's sort of where it sort of started, uh, you know, late 1999, all the way through to finally 2010, uh, spun myself off as as a company commercializes solutions, sure, and they were really built around solving uh, the engineering process, the deep intractable uh, traceability issues that we are continuing to have today. So that's sort of the background there uh, on on the company.
1: You know, I, I always like talking to entrepreneurs. Whether you consider yourself an entrepreneur or not, you are obviously because um, you you left the so-called security of a of a paycheck. Um, a bit of a false security, but a security nonetheless. Um, so and and sh- dove yeah. off the uh, you know into the deep end of the cold pool and decided to, to do this on your own. Uh, and that you know that's certainly risky. Um, but there's usually an underlying reason for it. Now there are many reasons people get into business or start a business. One might be they see something on the market and they go, "Yeah, I want a piece of that," and you know we can do that. Uh, or they see an absence of something in the market, or they see the opportunity to take something that's in the market and make it better. That was my case. You know, I didn't invent the technology we had. I just, uh, I just optimized it and made it sexy to engineer, engineer sexy and um, and more useful. So, um, what do you think? Um, you fall into one of those three categories? Did, did you see something that wasn't being done well, or did or not at all, or um, pile on or you know what was the context of that?
0: Uh, that's an awesome question yeah and I think it's kind of a bit of all of them you know and you know you'll and it's great you know you've been down this path as well so uh, yeah lots of understanding on this um, So yeah there were solutions I was working with data was being collected from testers there was um, there was data being collected from work instructions or like tracking when product moved through a step. You know, the wafer maps being pushed into machines, they were stored in different places. And what you had was these different solutions everywhere I was working with, and none of them talked to each other. So if you wanted to understand the, the, the trace, what happened to a product, how many steps, I'd have to go over to the terminal on an old MES system called Promise. I don't know if you remember that name. No. But man, you know, just like dark screen lettering, you're typing at a command line prompt, there's no graphics. And you're like, where do these wafers the, go? The old
1: monochrome uh, green on black screens, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I do I mean, remember that. This is that. early 2000s too. I mean, you know, oh wow. the web's already out, but you know, you've seen inside factories, they're running on software that's 10, 20 years old. You know, so different systems, and then um, you know, say I try and pull data. I couldn't da- download data. Sometimes I literally just have to transcribe what was there. So that's a digital problem. How do I connect that digital? Then I go over the tester data database and I'm trying to pull it out and this tool is written in a specific way and it's very clunky and I can't get to the raw data. And I find problems in that test your data as well. So you tested a product four times, right? But there's eight data sets in there because it's not flagging duplicate data. So now I'm like putting on my, you know, trying to figure out, am I looking at a real yield or not? I mean, these problems that tie me up for 90% of my day. What is the data I'm trying to get? How do I clean it up? Some of the data doesn't even have the part number on it. You know, what wafer did it come from? You know, because somebody didn't bind that in or enter it correctly on the production floor. So these systems are all siloed and I'm working with this, and this is like a $1.4 billion company I'm working at at the time. So they got money, they have thrown money at all these tools, but none of them all interconnect. So I'm the guy running around the campus. So getting to the thing, and what I do is I was, I said, you know what, you can collect all this in a centralized place and you could tag it and contextualize it, so I was taking, finding the the problems with existing solutions, how to fix that. But then the other one was, there's a lot of, I'm constantly grinding through analytics. I can write a nice script, you know, because luckily with a double E degree uh, and then a computer science degree as well, commensurate, helped me be pretty good on software. So I would start automating my job. I'd say, you know what? I wrote an algorithm that would just run through every data set and cross correlate it against everything else. And it may take 20 hours. But after that 20 hours, holy cow, the insights, that were just coming out. And
1: you could do something more productive during that 20 hours, right? It's a good investment.
0: Absolutely, actually, you know, and I took a lot of time to meditate. I would actually go and exercise a little bit more. I actually had a healthier lifestyle and I was solving some really complex problems. You know, I I didn't understand how certain designs were in a chip, how the transistor was working on some very advanced designs but just having the data and being able to cross correlate it itself, I would find insights and correlations there and I'd feed it back to design. And many times they were like, how did you find that? You just solved an issue we've had on design in terms of trying to get to you know a certain frequency band. And then they talked to me as if I understood the, the actual circuit. I'm like, I'm sorry, I haven't even seen the actual design. Now I need to exit the room. Thank you, <laughs> right?
1: Time to go. Yeah.
0: So, so it was that kind of experience yeah, dealing with these siloed systems that had all sorts of problems that couldn't deal with the real world nature of data. You know, they pull it in, create a wafer map, there you go, hey. But at the end of the day, everybody was trying to figure out whether they are looking at true yield or not and what was going on. So that was the one problem. And then where it was the real motivation that the pain uh, to to create a solution, sort of start on that entrepreneurial path was, uh, we had a reliability issue. So same company, a couple of years later, I'm playing around with my software and I'm kind of automating it. We have a reliability issue. It's a central side modem chipset. I mentioned, you know, being responsible for this device that was in Alcatel, Lucent, Cisco, everything, all advanced routers around the world pretty well. And we couldn't solve it for six weeks. And the customer designed us out completely. One of our key customers. Basically, wow. the customers is actually mine now, Cisco, but they designed, where I was working for, they designed the chip out in six weeks that was a 70 million dollar revenue loss so now there's acts cutting the jobs there's carnage and turns out i'm the only guy in this this massive company that's actually been trying to piece everything together so i grab my little databases i'm playing with and an army of consultants lands on me <laughs> and i see how they methodically start walking through connecting the dots and they kind of outline that path to how to better connect the dots from device design to machine data to actual tester data, fab data, tied together, and ultimately those data sets that I had that I was collecting helped them identify the root cause, and we got through that, but didn't recover the revenue, unfortunately. So, well, you, so there you, secured, was else. you
1: secured your job. You were the you were the last person they, they could <laughs> fire, right? Because you had all the you had all the secrets. Uh,
0: you know, yeah, it's uh, but you know, as you said, you know, the paycheck having a paycheck is not. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the thing to hang your hat on, you know, uh, there were nine layoff sessions for various market reasons after that yeah. company got shaved into pieces. Anyway, we've all been through that crazy ride sure. up and down. But yeah, so it's really, that's really the story. And, uh, and then um, piecing it together. Uh, the other thing is you work with some very insightful people that kind of give you a little guidance. And so I have to pay respects to having a great manager at the time, you know, And he just said, keep going, keep doing what you're doing. You know, he bought software licenses before I even thought about buying the software to help innovate a bit better. So, and then when I moved to another company after that, uh, now I was armed, I went in and I said, this is my IP. This is what I bring to the table. You know, let's make sure I own it and I'm gonna deliver on some things internally here. And then I had some really great people to work with there that fostered that innovation as well. That's great. yeah. so that's, I loved that's your comment dumb.
1: about how uh, you took the time you saved after you invested time writing code um, to, you know, analyze the, the the code and sort through it. Um, you use that uh, extra time you saved to meditate and exercise. It's not very often one can say writing code is good for your health, but in this case, <laughs> in this case, it definitely was, right? Let's yeah. let's define some common terms. Uh, most of my audience is within our space here, the EMS space, um, but just in case, let's just let's just start with the beginner's mindset um, frequently frequently the um, um, you know we, we talk about industry 4.0 and um, that I'm thinking might have different connotations to different people it's it could be a little bit contextual or it might just have a you know might be the result of a marketing campaign some manufacturer put out um, it's like like the term AI artificial intelligence I can't tell you how many Consumer devices claim to have AI. You know, toothbrush with AI. It's like, no, it doesn't have AI. That's just a. Yep. You know, they've taken a legitimate technical term and they've they've bastardized it and 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 turned it into a marketing term. Um, so let's talk about industry 4.0 for a moment. Um, what is industry 4.0? And does your definition and understanding of industry 4.0 differ in any way from the conventional uh, interpretation of that phrase?
0: You know, I think definitely aligned with what it is. If I think about how it originally came out of sort of more the German groups, uh, Industry 4.0, sort of a European coin thing back in the day, uh, it's really about uh, leveraging data in a way that you can automate uh, actions and insights, be that transferring of data through a central repository and then processing it back to a machine to instruct the machine. Uh, basically, just leveraging data to start to integrate more and more automation, where you know you the vision at the end of the day is the production line sort of runs itself. I think that's a little bit fluffy, honestly. Uh, you know, just the nature of things, but uh, that's that's the definition to me. I see it, and what i am bound to is that just leveraging data and applying some good analytics tools, AI. It's machine learning. They're not applying anything beyond that, and at the end of the day, when you look at machine learning AI, it's really just a whole statistical regression, just looping on itself, um, you know, walking down a tree of data until it finds that one little thing. But it's really leveraging all those to create, create an actionable sequence of events through the manufacturing. And now it extends out to the supply chain side, and I think that's the very nebulous side of it, is what does Industry 4.0 mean in terms of supply chain interconnectivity? Um, and my definition is, is, is just interconnecting these factories uh, just with uh, just some core um, product traceability data that can create those actionable insights. Realistic industry 4.0, it's just simple contextual data shared between companies all the way down that can be now leveraged back into your factory floor to create these feedback loops of, of actionable insights. I like that and term,
1: uh, realistic. Industry 4.0. That's that's yeah. much more qualified than just Industry 4.0, um, because as I said earlier, that's kind of become a buzzword. How about the terms uh, uh, CFX and SMEMA and Hermes and and all of that? Uh, let's contextualize those terms as well.
0: Yeah, those are, those are protocols. You know, so they're data. It's really at the end of the day, it's a specification of like how to write data into some electronic format, and then what those blocks mean, and then what, how they should be interpreted and what actions should result from that. So basically protocols for machine-to-machine communication, in essence, just to specify a signal of an event and pass on that data between systems, mm-hmm. sort of my general definition of that. Right.
1: It's a almost like a programming language. It's a, like you said, a protocol, right? One machine may not yeah. speak the other protocol, in which case it's just it's just signals that it doesn't know what to do with. So. Um, so the early days of communication between various pieces of equipment, Equ- equipment has have had the capabilities of talking to each other for many years, um, maybe more in an yeah. analog fashion than a digital fashion. Um, for example, you know, in a, an assembly could leave one machine, head toward another machine, and a signal, uh, probably an analog signal, just an open-close, would just send... A signal to the next machine saying, "Hey, this is coming, right?" And it would turn on something. That was, you know, very basic machine-to-machine communication. Um, Today, instead of limiting communication to a simple uh, analog signal, we've added data to what is being sent and collected. You know, it's become digitized as opposed to just on-off, open-close. And the explosion of that data and storage technology over the past several years. Has increased our ability to collect data points, dozens, uh, perhaps hundreds from each machine, cumulatively millions of data points from all these machines, um, probably billions in your world of individual data points. And that's led to this stockpile of, you know, quote, big data. Uh, and perhaps this question is at least as big as big data itself. Um, how does one convert? all of that data or discern all of that data into more useful and actionable data. So we've, we've come to the point where we can collect all this stuff. Um, you know, who's the, who's the guardian at the gate to determine, you know, we don't care if a light bulb went out on a machine, that doesn't really matter for this particular application, but, um, you know, uh, uh, something that would result in an escape um, or a component being placed backwards, or, or a machine, shutting down, something. Who's the arbiter of all of that? All of that big data. Does it start with you? Does it start with your customer? Does it start with the industry? Explain that process to me in in four hours or less. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, Certain vendors, you know, Certain software companies, man. They'll talk your ear off on this. Uh, for me, it's really it's really straightforward and. They, um, uh, So i just start with big data. Yeah, it's it's a nebulous term uh, in many cases. Um, But uh, originally it applies to unstructured data. So just sort of the history of the term, uh, really grabbing every and all data and just throwing it into a bucket somewhere, some big storage container, because storage is cheap now. And then afterwards you can now go through and write some software to mine through it. So it goes back to sort of that example I talked about back in the day where I wrote a little algorithm just to cross-correlate different data sets and stuff like that. You know, and then you get insights, you know, so that's sort of where it is. I think in manufacturing, big data uh, is is different. Uh, it needs to be structured. Uh, there are solutions out there um, with competitors, you know, that do it unstructured. And then afterwards, they're like, okay, you know, uh, customer, what type of insights do you want to see? Now it becomes a big fishing expedition. You're going to pay per report and, you know. You can kind of sense my disdain and my voice on well, that. Well, and a lot
1: of time, in your world, I'm sure this is especially true. I know in my world it's true. Customers don't know what they don't know. Yeah. So if, if you ask the customer what do they want to know, they may have some tunnel vision, right, and, and, and uh, limit out some other practical data, useful data, actionable data that they didn't even consider. Maybe they didn't even know it was being collected, right?
0: Yeah, that's a big yeah, a, a, a risk in the approach. So how to remove that risk is basically look at data as, as needs to be in context. If I'm going to have data come off a machine, how do I know that which product, what board serial, what operator was on there, what work shift time, what machine ID, what were the process settings? Just as a minimum, what was the result? Did it give you a known good, a known pass? You know? Just that key stuff, that can be put into a really nice table structure. And then how to get that in is sort of the real key thing. How do you get it in context? If you're just grabbing that data and throwing it up in the cloud, later on you got to come around and you got to figure out how to contextualize it. So what I call it is data binding. So solving the big data problem in manufacturing because there's so much data, is really bind it to the right context. You know, tag it, tag it correctly right at the start then you don't lose that in the future. You're like, oh man, I wish we could have looked at it like this. You're good. You've tagged it. You know what work shift, what time, what machine ID, where it happened. Now, systems don't talk to each other very well for most on the manufacturing floor. You know, you have one machine talking to another, each machine will dump data in a different format. So you need to, when you look at big data, you gotta break it down to, okay, what are my sources of data? How do I contextualize it? And what type of system Can I use to collect it and contextualize it for me and do it in a decent amount of speed time. We're in a really great point in technology where most networks can run at gigabit now, you know, gigabit ethernet. You can upgrade your router on your production floor, your switch, and you can can start pushing, you know, 100 meg per second at least. You can grab that data very quickly. You can stick a low cost server at the end of it and start to hoover it in. And you can just copy that out to the cloud just in case something happens to that server. You can do that in real time. You can actually set that kind of system up in a day if you just plan it out.
1: Yeah, I have a gigabit um, um, internet uh, provider at my home. You know, it's all fiber and I'm at one gig, right? And now they're offering me two gig. I don't need two gig. But, but yeah. you're right. It's, it's become, yeah, speed, not just is memory cheap now, speed is cheap,
0: Yeah. So now you can contextualize data and store it quickly. You know, you don't have to grab it and throw it up in the cloud and, you know, um, you know, come back later and figure out what you're going to do with it. Uh, Right. You know, so that's sort of for me, is like you, you can contextualize big data manufacturing needs to be stored. Data needs to be stored as coming off in in a contextual structure and you can grow databases really big. As you're talking about, you've got your multi-terabyte box. Uh, You know, we've got... It's the technology, especially the open source side of it, is amazing. Google, Facebook, Amazon, they don't exist in their form today if it wasn't for some key open source technology stacks. One of them being MySQL. In the back of Amazon's big RDS database technology, the logs spit out in the old MySQL mode. You can see it. They use MySQL and scale it up. So companies today have access to great tools. Uh, You use... to to collect this and contextualize it, but you need experts, you need somebody, you need an expert who understands machine data, you know, has an understanding of what the machines are doing, has an understanding of process, supplier, to help set it up to tag it. But yeah, you've got fast networks now, you can move this data in real time, you can store it in real time, you can make it actionable in near real time. And I say near real time, God say actionable within about 100 to 300 milliseconds. You know, which that is long? Yeah.
1: <laughs> I guess. I guess well, if you were a stock trader, that would be too long, right? But but well, in this easy. world, that's awfully fast.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I tell you, companies like uh, robotic assembly systems, like Harmontronic's. I mean, that does 23 operations of a whole assembly, and each one's transacted, you know, against Intracius software platform. I mean, we have to respond our software platform in within about 100 to 200 milliseconds. Otherwise, the next operation is going to jam up. You know, so you, wow. you have these interesting things that happen when you're reading data in real time, and you're creating a feedback. So, doing this industry 4.0 approach, but um, anyway, kind of going off a little bit, but yeah, making the data contextual makes it immediately actionable, you know, and, and that's powerful. And then big data is not big data anymore. It's not unwieldy. Now it's usable, you know. Um, right. So.
1: It's useful data. Yeah. So. How can, speaking of useful data, how can useful data influence prop- process optimization? I interviewed uh, someone from a um, medium-sized EMS company a couple years ago, and his, um, his, the, the, the platform he stood on quite firmly was that an American contract manufacturer can be just as competitive as an offshore contract manufacturer with the right amount of Optimization and efficiency. If if it's all about labor dollars, then you're not efficient enough. That was that was his point. And it, I've had some people say that's a little Pollyannish, but but the point I I totally get is you know we we can certainly make our processes more efficient through optimization. How can you know the early days of of communication between equipment? As I said earlier, it was you know telling a machine to turn on something's coming and yeah it was very basic it was it was very practical. Um, how now can the use of of data um, increase markedly increase the level of optimization and therefore efficiency and reduce operating costs and make embracers of this technology more competitive?
0: yeah I, I love answering
1: this one um the uh, you know they queued you up right good
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah the ROI you know where it sits hundred uh, percent agree I you know I look at one example is look at Germany the Mittelstand right all these little mom and pop factories and how they they started to automate in these small factories and they started to, and they made themselves hugely competitive and they start to create products that were very bleeding edge technic technologies you know that the other low cost manufacturing centers couldn't replicate, you know, very quickly. Now they're catching up, China's catching up, but Germany really moved So it's this approach of automation. Now data brings that too. now in the world and we absolutely can equalize it. The labor thing does not become the, 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 the issue, you it's, it's, sorry, just. when when you're automating, where our costs are really sitting is on the engineering side. You can only squeeze labor so low, right? You need these people, but you can do a lot more when they actually have all the information they need. So it's kind of this, so basically uh, data, you're cutting out with good data contextual, you're cutting out 90 to 95% of engineering time spent a day that's wasted. You know, I talked about in 2003 when I had the reliability problem, That was my day. It was 90 to 95%. Just do I trust the data, cleaning it, loading it, doing this. As soon as it's contextual and it's right there, your decisions are supported. You're guided in the right direction. And so now you're 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 improving it. We have one of our customers actually documented that for us on a deployment on the data. They they proved it. They had a ninety four point six percent improvement on their engineering time. And those wow. are expensive dollars. Right. Now you add that to management. Management's running up and down the floor trying to figure out where are my parts? Am I going to deliver on time? You know, my ERP is kind of telling me this, and somebody updated this spreadsheet, and they're in mixed mode. When you pull all the data together, you centralize it, you contextualize it, that gets solved instantly. So the competitive element is huge. And I know when dealing with Asian partners, um, you know, they had, I quickly learned as an engineer, we try and launch a product over there and I'd get somebody junior and I'd be working with them and I'd train them out, the next thing you know, they disappear and now they're in sales trying to sell to the next company, you know? So we were right. training them and that's fine, but they could just throw people at it constantly. And that's the thing, and they still have a sea of people. I know one CM, they have 50 people that just sit there and fill out spreadsheets all day. And we could remove that entire group with one software license installed we do that here in this market, yeah, we can completely level the playing field easily. We're, 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 we're reducing that engineering cost and every one of the customers that I've seen, companies that have in, improved their processes, improved their data capability, have grown. Um, we've got a customer that's grown 4X in two years. They're gobbling up automotive product lines. They weren't really firmly in the automotive sector before for electronics. Uh, so I've, I've seen the proof it's there um yeah hugely competitive and that's the future you know kind of mimic what germany did in terms of automation now we have automation let's take it to the next level i'll call it data automation you know and and that's self-reinforcing and it just brings massive growth
1: so and i would think that there are certain industries auto being one of them that um, really values data i I would think that because because National, you know, uh, Transportation Safety Board, NTSB, can do, rec- you know, can order recalls. They have to know if if a, if a part goes bad, they have to know who made the part, which parts those cars went on, what the VIN numbers were. They need to know what owners to notify, you know, the same with aviation and, and other high-rel applications. I, I'm sure they they expect their vendors to have some form of, data collection that can help with traceability, if, probably efficiency too, knowing the auto industry, uh, but um, definitely for traceability. I would imagine that those are modern requirements just to be able to sell to certain industries.
0: Yeah, very much so. Yeah, they, they have to get the, 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 the DPPM level so low. You know, I, I remember having a chat with somebody and I just said, you know, what you're dealing with the automotive market is you're talking billion points of failure in a car. It's not like the few thousand. It's now billions of points of failure. And then um, I had a chat with somebody who was from Accenture. Actually, uh, CTO of Accenture gave a chat at a Global Semiconductor Alliance uh, presentation a couple years ago, and basically said, you know, uh, every every hour there's an Audi coming off the line that is destined to go back into the repair shop because of electronics. Yeah, you know? and uh, yeah, that's just accelerated. Um, And we've seen, yeah, some EV companies like Tesla, they're brilliant. Their supply chain, show me the data, show me the data. You know, this is how they really started to move the needle. Um, You know, the rest of the auto industry does that too. But um, I think, yeah, it was interesting to see how they tripped up with the semiconductor thing. They're just, you know, that's just taken over so much computing power on a car. You know, they didn't have the supply chains lined up properly. You know, the reliability issues they ran into. you know, yeah, data data solves that. So yeah, it's become critical. Absolutely, um, you know, and for for a for a single line small SMT shop, I mean, if you have a traceability system that's automated, you can show that data. Uh, you can you can now the customers you can capture for the margins. It's great. Uh, yeah. Just brings so much uh, prowess because yeah, the demand is there on these more sophisticated and uh, uh, OEMs.
1: Yeah. I, you mentioned Tesla. I, I've said this on the show before. I think one of the differences between Tesla and, and the conventional companies uh, is Tesla started out as a tech company with the aim of building cars. The traditional companies are car-building companies with the hope to add more tech. They, they just came from 180-degree different angles. And I think when you're a tech company, the downside of being a tech company building cars is your fit and finish isn't all that great, right? <laughs> quarter panels don't quite line up. You have wide, you know, wide uh, gaps between panels, uh, where the, the traditional car companies they got that down, you know, 30 years ago. Um, but your tech is amazing, and you know Tesla has the best tech of any car company. I look at Volkswagen, not to throw them under a bus, but you know they have with their i4 or whatever whatever they call it uh, model tons of tech issues buggy super super buggy but they you know they come into this fairly late in the game they didn't start as tech they started you know building VWs with with uh, with no electronics except maybe the radio everything else was electrical so it's just a different mindset you mentioned earlier that you gave an example of how you know one light one software license could solve a one particular problem right is there a I I don't want to get into your pricing models, nor nor do you, I'm sure. Um, But is there a significant barrier to entry for embracing a company like yours or other of your competitors? Is is it a a huge investment? Is it a fairly rapid ROI? Is is what's what are your customers' experiences?
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's it depends on the solution provider. You know, the market has a number of solutions out there. um, You know, and um, I, I'm a different company, right? I come from the engineering side, and the number one thing was it deploys. It doesn't need you to hire anybody to support. IT loves it because it just comes in and drops in an existing infrastructure, and just leverages what's existing inside your factory walls, right? Which is pretty sophisticated today. You know, you've got you've got 100 megabit per second uh, network at least. You know, you can put a switch, a router. You can use cloud services to connect in your factory, you know. Um, yeah, so the barriers to entry depend on what kind of solution you're going into, um, and you know, I've I've got I'm pretty opinionated of the market now. We've been running for about 12 years, and when I came out of more the sophisticated side, we deployed in silicon photonics, so we're dealing with like traceability of a chip on the endpoint of fabs, so all the fab data coming out, how it gets split up. Then they place chips on that chip, plus a laser MEMS, plus they program it with firmware, software, put on a PCBA, you have to have that track, that goes out to a CM Amcore ASC. How well did they do it? Do they test it, get their data, come back in full traceability? Now you go plug that thing in a supercomputing cluster or in a Amazon data center and your email better be working. Your shopping cart better fire off when I'm ordering my stuff. So I get it in one day. You know, that reliability, so that's where we came out of and being able to solve that was really straightforward for me because focusing on ease of deployment, ease of integration, protocol agnostic, Mm -hmm. don't force vendors, machines to change how they generate data just because your software is clunky, right? Right. You should, your software, the MES and the IoT system should adapt to each different machine and protocol it should be the universal translate, you know, so that approach completely squashes barriers to entry. So, so isn't is the final example. So we've been able to deploy into NPI bleeding edge startups doing printable wearable batteries into now also into full-on Volkswagen, Audi automotive lines. One of our first deployments was in a GM autonomous vehicle line, 3,000 bomb components, high reliability, running it through a, fully automated line. So going from almost a mom and pop shop, startup all the way to high volume, global connected factory, same stack. The barriers to entry have dropped working Mm -hmm. with a vendor like us. And there's other vendors that are similar to us, which is Mm -hmm. great, seeing the market move. Now, if you go with one of the big names, it's gonna be a time and materials build out. They're gonna customize everything. And the question is, why? Why do you have to customize? I'm gonna buy a Siemens system. Why do you have to customize it when I'm an SMT line and you've got hundreds of SMT lines deployed? Because the model is is backwards. It's time and materials that give you a cheap license and now we're gonna nail you for SOWs and nail you for contracted support and service hours because we can funnel that out to outside the country and get a massive margin on these per hour dollars. And that's our fee, customization. You know, um, So you ask those questions. When you ask those questions, I think an end customer, uh, the manufacturer, when they ask the questions, they will align with the right vendor and the barriers to entry will start to disappear uh, to the tune of 12 weeks. We've done deployments as fast as 12 weeks. Uh, and I can give you one of the craziest examples. I didn't believe we would have done anything as good as we did and I'm not going to put it on me. This is my team. I like, I've had some great engineers working with me. Really, uh, really clever uh, guys and gals figuring it out. Uh, But uh, we deployed to a factory line. i just show you, tell the audience just how the barriers of entry can disappear with the right solution. Uh, We deployed to a Silicon Photonics customer in the Boston area, wired in their feeds to TSMC Global Foundries, a site in Canada a lead site for contract manufacturing, as well as another site in New Jersey. All their machines, testers, data were flowing through the network, being passed by FTP, sometimes direct across the web, all Hmm. secure. And we connected up the whole factory line, uh, or supply chain line, and now they can see where a wafer is at any point in time, where it's been diced, where it's assembled. We don't even know what they look like. We actually never left our offices in San Diego. We just remote it into their existing IT infrastructure, which they set up, basic servers, and started to connect that up. So the conclusion is the right vendor with the right technology has removed the barriers to entry. You can take a single SMT line right now and turn it into a lights out factory floor. And you don't have to force any machine to change its protocol right. or its data on it, you know? So, right.
1: yeah. Yeah. That, that- that's uh, quite promising you talk about the right vendor let's talk about that for a moment um, yeah. when seeking if I'm looking for a vendor like yours like your company or or you know the others um, what types of questions should I be asking you I'm like okay Ryan um, here's what I think I need you know how, how do I go about vetting a a provider and explaining what I think my needs are, you know, give some advice to people who have not yet, um, exploited all of that data, all of their various machines are, are collecting and, and no, and they know they need to, or may, maybe they want to, um, what kind of smart buyer, uh, what would you define a smart buyer as or a savvy buyer?
0: Yeah, that's a great, yeah, such a good question. um, um, You know, it's, it's, uh, really asking them really understanding what their whole model is, what they can guarantee. I think, uh, you know, what they can really, if they can put their money where their mouth is, you know, they say, um, you know, one of the key ones is always ask you what has to be customized. Like, here's my production. So, um, you know, and, and vet that they really understand what you're doing and then, you know, Roll up your sleeves with them um, and say, "Okay, at all these these stages, this is what I need to track and and what understand what they have to customize and question why. You know, why do you have to customize this? You know, um, I think that's one of the first things is just have them put their money where their mouth is, see what they can guarantee in the deliverables, see what they price out, but then dive in and start asking about all the customization. Okay." So this is delivered up front, great, okay, this needs customization, why? You know, I, I think in today's market now, there's enough companies like Intratio out there. We know how Yamaha, Fuji, or Panasonic dumps data. You know we, know, we know AXI, AOI. we better be able to speak to it. We better have a way to catalog it in real time to give you, an, you know, analytics results. So you have to dive in at each one of these key stages and really start to question the why are you customizing? And now you'll start to unearth all these other costs. You'll start to see, oh, let me get my field application engineer over here. And, you know, now they drag out the conversation too. So it's also that time, you look at how much it's taking for them to answer those questions. It's kind of vet how good a, a vendor they are. Um,
1: yeah, but you, you brought up something there. Um, you know, you, your company, your team knows, you know, a Heller oven, what they collect, a Fuji, pick and place, what they collect, et cetera. Um, I would imagine there's companies like yours that serve the paint manufacturing industry. And whatever machines make paint um, probably have you know unique protocols and data collection points and things like that. Um, I, I'm making an assumption that your company's expertise is in the semiconductor and, and EMS kind of space, right? Do, I would imagine that would be very important if I'm an EMS company CM to so when I say I have a Fuji machine you don't you don't turn around and go what's a Fuji right so uh, are are there players in this in, in your field that try to say you know they're they're good at everything um, and then or, or are they very siloed uh, just organically yeah.
0: No, you, 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 it's a really good point you're touching on. Yeah. There's a lot of companies that are repurposing thinking, Oh, we, yeah, we did it on a paint shop. Can I a paint machine? We can connect to something else. Yeah. They're out there. Uh, there's a lot of vaporware sales. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So you're hitting on it. The, yeah, the, the, the vendor needs to know your industry intimately. They really need to understand the pain points. Like we can sit there, you know, and we say, printer, do you want to track? You need to track your stencil. How many times was it used? You need an alert. until you swap the thing out because we know what the quality issues are gonna be. And we know the data that can be all tied together from serialized etch at a CTI laser through air shower, AOI, AXI, mount or board, doesn't matter. We see the data, um, You know, understand the inventory side, these things. Uh, all the way out to final test functional and test that and there's a lot of companies that actually you know Like created a solution IOT and they collect only you know They have a little box that touch to the machine it will pick up vibrations and sensor data put it off And then they capture a bit of market share and now they're like, okay We can start collecting all this other data and it turns out they have no idea what ICT data structures are functional tests. Right. what is an STDF file, you know, it's it's funny, but they will tell you, oh, no, we're in the factory floor. So, yeah, so for an end customer, yeah, asking these questions, okay, you know, tell me Number what Number one, you...
1: are you in my space, right? Do you, want, yeah. do you recognize these brand names? That's, that's probably the first qualifying question, right? Am I talking to a company that is familiar with what I use and what I buy and what's on my, my factory floor, right?
0: I've got a really egregious example for you. We just ran into this. So, so I love data. right, data and getting in there and looking at all this SMT data turns out like, holy cow, we could actually push this to an ERP system like Oracle SAP, where nobody has to manually enter anything anymore. And we did. So we did an integration with SAP. We've got multiple with Oracle. I don't even care if you work using QuickBooks or your own custom spreadsheet. We'll push the data to it and it will be accurate in real time. So now we're doing a lot more of these integrations. And one of the medical device customers we have or um, an Oracle team came in and they were going to sign up with them. And this Oracle team was like, oh, yeah, ERP, yeah, we're great. So even in the ERP world, they say, well, we've done accounting ERP for all different companies. And, yeah, we can do this no problem for this medical device where they're using a silicon photonics chip as a baseline product. They've got consumables, a whole diagnostic system. Turns out of this ERP vendor, they came out of the mattress business. <laughs> like, you're just... And that process got gummed up, and that is just it dragged out because they did not understand the customer. But, you know, yeah, yeah, buyer beware. Yeah, I mean, that's it's one of the most egregious examples. Um, And uh, anyway, so, yep, the interesting
1: We talk about how your customers vet companies like yours and others. Um, One thing I've learned after 31 years in business is we select our customers just as much if not more than our customers select us. You know, if we select the wrong customer, it's not gonna be a pleasant experience for either of us and both of us are gonna be disgruntled. Um, How does your company, how do you and your team go about making sure you're working with the right customer, that it's a good, um, it's a good fit? you know, is there a process of, you know, without getting into anything proprietary, obviously, but um, is there a, a process you go through to interview customers, kind of a discovery call, and and to ensure that you're both on the same, you both have the same goals in mind? Yeah,
0: yeah this is great. You know, this is, um, um, yeah, this this talks to about, I think the other part of this, so I'll answer that, but it's great because the answer also touches on how, yeah, the industry, our industry here, especially North America, has to kind of move. I think still has to move a little bit faster in this. They become data centric. You know, for for me, the main thing is that we see buy-in that data will will how will start improving things. Um, we also see, um, you know, another thing is that uh, that they're they're willing to lean on us for guidance of good practices, best practices as well. Um, But uh, definitely data-centric mindset. And you have to have buy-in at the whole level, all the way up. If you don't, uh, you know, then it's, you're you're going to run into, you don't want to have, for me, it's like you don't want to have deployment issues. You need buy-in at the top and they need to make sure everybody's on board that we're going to automate and we're going to drive data and we're going to become a data-centric company. You know you really have to see that right up front um the other so for me vetting a customer the other one is churn too you know you get buy-in and if there's a lot of churn especially at a very a critical manuf- manager layer you know if you've got a revolving door of production managers going in and out you know it's it's going to be it's it's uh that that's a that's a sign that it doesn't matter what the top says they're going to lose the momentum to right. execute on this. and right. you're not going to ex- get
1: traction. You're not yeah. going to get a lot of progress, right, because you have to keep, you know, it's like a quite literally a broken vinyl record. It's just going to skip, skip, skip. And, yeah, and yeah uh, that's kind of our experience as well. You um, talked earlier about cloud-based. Um, you know, the advantage of the cloud is it can store <laughs> almost infinitely more data than you would want to store. You know, you don't... Factories don't generally have data centers, you know, in their, in their factory. Uh, data centers, you know, Amazon Web Services, all that stuff, you know, they're in these nondescript secret locations, bomb-proof, you know, with backup generators, and they have multiple, you know, uh, backups throughout the country. Uh, very kind of spooky cloak-and-dagger, you know, for security reasons. Um, but speaking of security, if, if I was uh, uh, an, uh, a contract manufacturer, an OEM, and I was like, ITAR listed. Um, my experience with companies that are ITAR and, and similar types of protocols, security protocols, is, you know, nothing nothing can be connected. We have to, when we ship our equipment out, you know, our equipment is operated uh, by by PCs, quite literally PCs. And, you know, we have to disable, remove all the drivers, uh, the, the uh, Wi-Fi drivers and things like that. We have to put... Um, Connectors with locks on them, into the Ethernet ports and USB ports and things like that. I mean, it, they're they're dorky little locks. I mean, they're just plastic; and they can be broken off. But at least someone would have to make an effort. It wouldn't accidentally just stick a USB drive in and download data. Um, what are the options for someone like that who is very concerned about security and they're under regulation and scrutiny? Uh, is there a a um, an alternative to a cloud model that can do all of that number crunching and, and storage of that data in-house if they, if they can't connect to a cloud?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's just, just kind of having an IT person that kind of knows their good basics around it. Right. So you can have all that machine on a network that's its own subnet. It's just its own little ethernet network. And it has a single switch that connects it to the next network in. You can control there which ports are open and which direction traffic can move in. So you could actually have an MES or IoT data system sitting in your your IT closet. That is the only thing that's talking to that network. So the machines run, you can collect the data from there, and you do it on an HTTP basis. Like you don't push binary files, you know, where something nefarious could be embedded. So there's no interchange. So very simple, but it's a great, it's a drawbridge mode. You raise the bridge, nothing's moving in and out. Mm-hmm. Or there's, there's only one key to go in and out. Um security is a big thing. Ransomware is huge. it's unfortunately it's just rampant everywhere. And yeah. it's always about weak infrastructure. Um you know, simple approaches. Uh this is before I even created uh intra ratio. You know, I would just I would, I would have a box with a database and I'd be collecting data and I'd have another box that's an exact copy of it. It's a $2,000 server sitting there. And every time you did a change here, it replicated onto this one in real time. But this one had a different root level access user, even use a different admin name, just separate it. Somebody came in and they hack one machine, you see them, you just throw the machine away, bring the other one, connect to the network, continue running as normal. That's through the test of time, these simple approaches. Um, yeah, I guess I, that, 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 that
1: philosophy yeah. is not if, but when you get hacked, when yeah. it happens. The chance of them luckily hacking two at the same time, when they don't even know those two are in your building, um, is, is fairly remote, if not impossible. So um, prepare for the hack and, and have a backup.
0: Yeah, you know, cloud is great for this. I just touching the cloud thing, uh, the audience, this should definitely resonate with many of them. Cloud is expensive, actually, if you don't do it right. It can be one of the biggest expenses you'll ever have. Your IT budget will blow up. Amazon is gonna nail you for IO data pushing and pulling. It's gonna nail you for RAM adding to it, but that really gets you on the data side. So what you wanna do is use cloud in a manufacturing environment. You don't want to run heavy analytics out there in the cloud. Right. The reason why a lot of vendors will push you to that is because it's easy for them to write crap software. I'll just be honest. Right. It'll easy for them to test, right? They're like, oh, this report is now taking an hour. Okay. Throw more CPUs at it, add more RAM. The customer is going to pay for it. And now it'll run faster. I am, I cannot stand badly written code, like for myself, like, I come out of the days, some of the first things I ever wrote was embedded software. I mean, you, we talk about memory limitations. I had one meg to, to stuff everything this controller needed to do it, you know? So I'd write really compact bulletproof code. Anyway, that's where I see cloud get abused. Uh, cloud definitely has huge benefits, but uh, in terms of manufacturing data setting, it can be very expensive. $4,000 server can service transactions off a couple high volume SMT lines. It'd be amazing how much data yeah. you can, for a $4,000 Dell machine off the rack. When that's capturing data, now have it copy it out and replicate it out to the cloud or the back end. So very simple technologies today, open source. You can Google it. It's called uh, MariaDB replication, MySQL replication. You bring up a simple MySQL database. You can turn on this replication. You can have another machine out in the cloud and every time there's a transaction on it, it's copied out there as well. Your factory blows up, somebody ransomwares your, your primary machine, throw it away, pull a copy down from the cloud, you're off and running again. Right. It takes maybe an hour, two hours to recover. Sure. And
1: but, not, uh, not $150,000 or a million dollars in ransomware.
0: Yep. Yeah.
1: Which but the FBI yeah, will I, tell you not to pay, but they'll show you how to pay it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's
0: brutal, it's brutal, yeah. Uh, just an example Up. Um, we had an uh, IT guy, a uh, great IT guy we're working with at Cisco, uh, customers, and uh, they were, there was a big push for them to migrate a bunch of the engineering servers and data servers off to the cloud. And he did the math. They had 120 servers to move off, and it cost them about 70000 a year to operate them. So they operated the cost on that. The cloud model for Amazon, when they finally dug into it, was going to cost them 200000 a month when they were fully up and running just wow. on the data IO. So you gotta be careful. You know, yeah. it's, uh, you know, well, trade-offs, but yeah. great for just pushing data out and storing it. You can do glacial storage. Um, anyway, just wanted to put that out there. Um, it's one of my, one of the things I like doing as a vendor. It's not, not the sales. The sales process is great. Absolutely driving revenue, but I love to, you know, share uh, just these key tips and tricks to sure. optimize operations and don't blow up the budget. You know, yeah. and you know, kind of just help avoid the bogeys.
1: So you, you say you love data, and it sounds like you also enjoy writing code. So here's a code question for you. This is kind of off topic, but tabs or spaces?
0: Uh, tabs, all the way around. okay. The, you for inline indentation? Yeah. yeah, Oh, absolutely, tabs.
1: Evidently yeah. in the code world, people argue about that, about that personal <laughs> yeah. style. And, yeah. and I don't know why. I, I've done, you know, I don't write code anymore. I used to write when we first started the company, I couldn't afford anyone that, to write the code. So I wrote the code, you know, I, a total hack. You would hate my software. I would drive you crazy because I had yeah. REM statements everywhere, you know, leaving breadcrumbs. So I remembered what I was thinking when I wrote it's stuff. It's the and, best
0: thing, actually. Honestly, that is some of the best practices. Now, my guys, you know, they would, uh, uh, yeah, I am 100% on that. But by the way, I'm my team is much better than I am. I mean, the guys even high school students come out, some of the skills they get these days. I mean, honestly, I, you know, in the SMT world, you walk in a production line and there's a couple operators. Yeah, they just are new techs. They just come out of college, They're not even high school, and they can write great little Python scripts. Yeah. They can automate. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's like, hey, don't jump on a vendor like us to come in and solve your problem. You can really work that internally
1: initially. Yeah, I'm something. a big believer that in, in school, in elementary school, reading, writing, arithmetic, coding, we need to teach coding not that not for the goal of turning them into a coder professionally in their career as an adult, but I think learning to write code, which I learned to write code when I was in high school, and that was in the seventies you know with a with a a phone modem to the mainframe <laughs> at the school district and a teletype machine, not even a screen, a teletype machine so and yeah. um but it it taught me to think analytically, it taught me to think you know because life is full of if then else statements yeah. right that's that's life and it really helped me problem solve um by learning to write code and i think children would benefit from that as in terms of a life skill just yeah. knowing how code works um, we talked about you know i used to write all our code in the early days of and then eventually we would get people who could write code and i remember once looking through the code Years later, some old code, some legacy code that we're not using anymore. And for some reason, I was looking through it, and one of the REM statements from the programmer who was who was the coder who was writing it was, um, "This is the way Mike wanted me to write it." I don't agree, <laughs> 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 but Mike insisted. And I love and, those.
0: I love those little those little things. I've even got. I've even got. I've had found code that I wrote like ten years ago that said, "If you remove this, you're creating a security hole." You know, at this point, I would choose a different career. Thank you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, little little breadcrumbs for the yep. for the next generation. Yeah. Um,
0: but wh- there's, there's so a- many. There's yeah, kids learning today. It's great. I mean, high school, college. Uh, there's a lot of basic boot camp courses kids are jumping into. It's pretty. It's pretty amazing. Um, you know, uh, so if, if a company is not data centric now, uh, watch out. Uh, some of your your staff that you're hiring on. They're going to know their way around a computer yeah. and a good script and a program. Um, yeah,
1: that's great. Um, there's a lot of buzz right now um, about artificial intelligence. We mentioned that earlier, particularly you know, with the you know the modern headlines on chat GPT and all that kind of stuff. Um, how has AI, you know, real AI, not bogus marketing AI, how has AI made its way into data analysis? And, and do you have any examples of, of that?
0: Yeah. You know, I'm actually, I'm really excited about uh, some of the applications and I like to bring it down to machine learning. You know, AI has got all these different categories, you know, and so using the word AI people, you know, think like full autonomous, uh, not there, not even really close, you know, uh, and I say close as we may be 97% there, but that 3% to really shift, that's a quantum leap that's got to happen in my mind. Um, you know, there's a lot of fluff around it. At the end of the day, uh, AI has really shifted things from the machine learning side of it, where you can create these models that can sift through massive amounts of data and pull out insights. Um, You know, what you're seeing on chat GPT and all these other things is just how these things can go off the rails. A great example is machine learning algorithms for facial recognition and some other signals done by the Florida um, um, police department. So, one of the one of the, the enforcement groups there w- was written by their own group. They brought in technology experts and they built it up. And what they found, they started running this, and they're like, "We got great results. We're able to pick out somebody that's potentially going to do a crime before they do the crime." You know, sort of that kind of dark level. And then what they found out was it was biased because the piece behind it, helping these technologies develop, or we're helping them drive the input into these systems to train sure. these algorithms and these biases are there. So I think that's something that needs to be hammered home across the industry. Luckily in manufacturing, we can deal with some very deterministic stuff, which is great. Uh, so obviously AOI, AXI is great. Uh, we have working machine learning models. We can actually identify an outlier, detect it anywhere on the production line at any time. You know, uh, working on that, um, and super fun and I love it exciting because you know talking about our market shift we deploy tools like that in our industry here we are moving the needle we are not an outsourced cm on the other side of the world throwing 20 people out of one product line and all they have to, they're doing all days looking for problems we can solve those problems with data um, but it's really machine learning it's really shifting it um, there's companies that have got Oh, the the cost of entry for automated visual inspection. Uh, There's a group out at Berkeley. They've got a software solution. You could use a basic webcam and place it over a a table and move product underneath it, and it'll start to detect the anomalies for you after an hour of training. A webcam? Yeah, basic, simple cameras. I mean, so... Wow. Yeah, this advances, and great machine learning and tuning. Last thing I'll say on that is it's... I, I, I'm empowered by the fact that this is open source. We are sharing it. You can go and find it if you really wanna roll up your sleeves and dig in there, and you've kinda of got your head around some decent mathematics. It's not that far-fetched. It's, it's very accessible, and that's a key thing to keep pushing in the industry. So um, it's not locked up technologies, but uh, machine learning is definitely moving the needle in terms of just uh, giving us more of our life back. You know, it's not replacing us. It's just it's giving me more time as an engineer to sit back and really solve design engineering problems. You know, uh, business problems. You know, leverage these tools for it. So um, anyway, you that's talked, my. You take talked on earlier it.
1: about uh, all the time you get back, and um, in, in your case, you used it to meditate and, and work out. I don't think too many uh, manufacturing companies are going to uh, open up a gym and a meditation center, or a yoga studio, or something, and have their employees do that. They'll find something. Um, more profitable for their staff to do. Um, but th- all of that leads to efficiency, all of that leads to competitiveness. With all the supply chain stuff our industry's been through, with the uh, logistical, you know, the shipping containers, you know, stuck out in the ocean, you know, for, for, for a month or more. You know, a lot of that is getting better. Um, and unfortunately, what we learned from history is we learned nothing from history. But during those times, just, you know, in the last year or so, so many companies, are talking about you know reshoring or nearshoring and and things like that. Um, countries that we moved out of now all of a sudden look really attractive, you know, because the alternative is, is even worse. Uh, so so I think there hopefully this was a significant enough disruption that companies are making longer term commitments to where it makes sense to uh, bring certain things back in house and and in order to remain competitive because. You know, obviously consumers are a fickle bunch. You know, Amazon and Walmart have you know, effectively driven down the cost of almost every consumer good to the point where I have no idea how, after it goes through the entire supply chain, how anyone can make any money on it, but obviously they do. Um, yeah. but, but I think the, the, the way we're going to get to that point where we can bring manufacturing back home or near home or at least to an area that's less volatile um, – and and more stable and logistically logical, you know, near us, so we don't have to ship eight thousand miles, you know, uh, for a twenty dollar part.
0: I climate, yeah, less fuel, uh, less yeah, yeah. Less yeah. Language, it, yeah.
1: it's going to have to yes, environmental, all that stuff. Uh, it, I think the way to do it is we just really need to become, you know, hyper efficient, and and um, we've done it in many, you know, the equipment. That is made now provides a great deal of efficiency over older equipment over manual systems uh, and and now you know uh, i remember that back in the day when my company was young you know we we our profits were low and and we'd go through the chart of accounts and and we'd look at all of our expenses and we'd go oh here it is and we'd go through and we'd wipe 30 percent off the cost of doing business great and then you know then we'd go through it again maybe a year later and we go oh there's another we can take off. And then we go through it again a while later, and then we found another 3% we could take off. And every time you go through that, you find more um, opportunities for efficiency and optimization. And I think what your technology is doing is it's taking an area that was never reviewed and making that area um, way more efficient. It's, It's the gaps between the equipment that you're able to optimize, and you know we were doing equipment by equipment by equipment. Now we're doing the entire process, looking at it holistically, and and you know kind of for the first time, um, and finding great opportunities for efficiency. I, I think it's a um, it, it, it's kind of a pioneering opportunity to increase efficiency and optimization that we've never really looked at in the way we're looking at it now before.
0: Thanks uh, that's a great read about it. Yeah, yeah, I never thought of it as pioneering. You know, I'm just still just looking at it from a pure engineering perspective, but no, absolutely. The application
1: is quite pioneering, I think. Um, obviously the technology some of the technology is pioneering, but but it's yeah. it's the application of that technology that to me is is quite um, evolutionary, maybe not revolutionary, because we've done it in other areas. But to look at the entire process and with the goal of accuracy and traceability and efficiency and optimization uh, is is um, I'm not aware of that being done before. You know, there there were older total methods like the Toyota manufacturing principle, you know, and, and, yeah, and all that 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 revolutionized one industry. But even that. Had we not progressed from that, then car manufacturers by today's standards would be very inefficient, right? Even though that was a revolutionary uh, approach to manufacturing at the time, we learned a lot from it. It's American car companies learned a lot from it. Uh, but but even that wasn't enough. You know, we, we, we're we way more efficient today since the Toyota manufacturing principles first were introduced. And we thought that was like the end all, right, back in the yeah.
0: day. Yeah, we're... Uh... You know you 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 just you uh, just tripped to thought. Uh, the key, I think the thing that's really happened is this this fusion of physical manufacturing and the idea of web, you know, enter the internet, how that's moved in. you know, like a stack like ours, where we sit on um, is is hyperscale. You know we can service a small line, you can service a global right now. I'm you know we're sitting here, and uh, one of my customers can see a transaction happening in China within three hundred to four hundred milliseconds in Illinois, sitting in Chicago, they can see exactly what's going on. They can see exactly what's happening in Mexico and Philippines in near real time like that. Um, and that's just using web technology uh, scale, the stuff that came out. I talk about the backbone of Amazon and Google, it's MySQL and some other technology, database technology that has permeated in and and, and putting it in the right place. I think, yeah, understanding how manufacturing works and then taking this web scale, hyperscale technology that is cheap to, I mean, cheap in terms of no overhead on IT, can deploy really rapidly, immediate results, and bringing that in and mapping it to the manufacturing model. Yeah, that's, it's it's exciting to to see this fusion of that. And this is where a lot of kids, you know, graduates coming out of school and college, they're all versed in web, they're versed in this, they're touching on it. a one quick anecdote in terms of where this came for intra ratio, uh, I never forget where things start. Uh, it always reminds me of, of just how fun the journey can be. You know, I didn't land at this final concept, you know, on a straight line, you know, like right. nobody does. Yep, yep. I happened to go to a conference. Uh, I was trying to build up a bigger data set and I'm not, uh, I wasn't a very, uh, um, I didn't network very well but somehow I mustered some uh, guts and I went, hit this thing and it was, a, it was a purely for database programming. It was MySQL conference. And I had no idea why I was there and then I'm bouncing around. And then I just started asking some questions. And next thing you know, anyway, long story short, I'm having schnapps, shooting some Swedish schnapps with one of the original founders from Sweden of MySQL, this Monty Wadenius and his old crew. And he's connecting me with a bunch of people, you know, and so put in mind, I'm an engineer semiconductor guy purely and now I'm stuck in this side with a bunch of these database guys and the stuff they're talking about is amazing and, and half the party was a new crew from this startup company that was just getting off the ground and they're trying to figure out how to do the back end of LinkedIn. That's what it was in 2006 was the wow. start of LinkedIn and so these guys were actually talking to me about my data and it was amazing the synergy of like I'm dealing with semiconductor manufacturing data. I'm trying to put in a database that's meant for web and they're like saying no it's not just for web. Look at all these structures behind it. This thing will scale work. Call us, hey, you know, here's a book, you know, here's some reference. That was sort of the thing that really moved the needle. So anyway, it's all it's all kind of converging, you know, it's great, this whole technology stack. We build the servers and the chips for the servers, right? We should be using the software that runs so well on these servers to, to help uh, drive our innovation, um, so.
1: We're we're pretty much out of time, but let me ask you just one final question um, that I'd like to ask most most of my guests. Uh, get out your crystal ball, uh, Ryan, and and where do you see your industry's future in the next several years?
0: Yeah, I you know it looks it looks great to me. Uh, you know I'm 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 in an a. This is going to op- be re-
1: this is recorded, so we're going to play it back a few years from now and see how <laughs> accurate you were. Right, Boston. you heard us here. Yeah, yeah. There you go.
0: I, I, I see, as long as the nearshoring momentum continues, which I believe it absolutely will, uh, I see with the government now behind us and the amount of money they've injected and in it, you know, and that opens up a whole bunch of other debate and stuff. Nonetheless, that is a major driver for uh, innovation and growth in our industry. Mexico, so much stuff. Yeah. North American Free Trade Agreement has really created a market and to now a massive market of interchange. The various different countries have great expertise you know it's software hardware uh you know natural resources out of canada you know to to drive our innovation you know um you know uh for manufacturing here and just yeah i see in the industry it just it looks great i mean we're bringing on semiconductor fabs again we're bringing in that tech here and we can leverage data to really accelerate our capabilities uh and you know, remove that labor discount that, you know, makes it such an unequal market. Anyways, I just, I see a lot of momentum and if that keeps continuing, it, I think we're, it's going to be, it's advanced tech, it's new technology, higher paying jobs, great opportunities, you know, and I just see uh, just, yeah, a lot of great growth ahead of us
1: on that. Excellent. Well, Ryan Gamble, Founder, CEO, Intra Ratio, thank you so much for being my guest today. It's a fascinating conversation. I hope we can do it again, because I yeah, have a feeling we're, we're not done. We're, I, still got, I still got piles of questions here, so um, maybe we'll, we'll have you back again, and, um, and we'll check in on your predictions, and we will uh, ask many, many more questions.
0: Thanks today. More than happy to. Yeah, it's great. Great questions. Yeah, this topic and yeah, curious to see what other topics you look want to dive into. But thank you so much
1: for today. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, that's another episode. Thanks for listening to or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Our episodes have been downloaded more than thirty thousand times. I remain ever grateful for your support and encouragement. Don't miss an episode, subscribe to Reliability Matters on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on our newest channel, Amazon Music, or virtually wherever you get your podcasts. If you're watching this on YouTube, click the subscribe button and bell icon to be notified when new episodes are released. We release new episodes on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month. A special thanks to Circuit Assembly Magazine's PCB Chat at PCBChat.com and Ascendo Reliability at reliability.fm for syndicating this show. Thanks also for your questions and episode suggestions. Please keep them coming. Send comments and episode suggestions to mike at mikeconrad.com. That's Conrad with a K. Once again, thanks for listening or watching. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy, and perhaps most importantly, keep doing it right. And I'll see you again in two weeks.
0: Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of
1: Reliability Matters.